Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. So in Orthodox practice, there are a lot of small variations that you might see from parish to parish, church to church, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, tradition to tradition. And I've been in churches where at the beginning of Vespers, when Psalm 103 is enacted, that sometimes it's very grand. The doors are opened, there's a great sensing, and you have a choir that sings sometimes the whole psalm, sometimes only parts of the psalm. But I've also been at Vesper services where it is quite, uh, it's lower key, where there is no great sensing at the beginning, and someone only reads the psalm as opposed to sing, sings it. So I think at the beginning of this episode, I think it would be worthwhile looking at some of the varieties of practice in enacting Psalm 103 liturgically. Of course, and there will be variety nearly parish to parish, community to community, above and beyond, you know, the appointed variety, as it were. But we've been talking a lot about Vespers as though it were just one thing so far, although we've specified that it came out of a kind of long process of development, out of two very distinct traditions and everything. But I'm talking about today, we, we say Vespers, kind of call to mind just one thing. But in fact, there are easily you know, five different ways that Vespers is appointed to be celebrated, depending on the level of uh, solemnity of the day, depending on what also is happening in and around uh, the celebration of Vespers. So uh, the Vespers that, you know, we, the two forms of Vespers we most are familiar with are daily Vespers and then great Vespers. Daily Vespers is done on ordinary days uh, when the rank of the saints that we're celebrating the next day or the festal commemoration are, are not of enough uh, warrant to have an entrance. That's where you know the presbyter and deacon will come around uh, during uh, after the lamp lighting and so forth, and will uh, you know, bring the, the censer around at that part of the service. So without an entrance, the service has a specific structure and, and celebration of daily vespers. Great vespers is appointed on more important feasts, big saints like St. Nicholas, for example, or certainly all of the, the larger you know, feasts of the church and so forth. That kind of gives us two you know, different patterns of the service. Kind of pushing out at the, the margins of those two, though, if you have, are doing on the eve of a feast a vigil service, you have great vespers at a vigil. In other words, uh, in, in the Slavic tradition, this would be great vespers followed by matins, followed by first hour, and it's appointed every Saturday evening as well as on the eve of, of every great feast. Uh, vespers starts differently, even from great vespers, you know, done on its own. Even more simple than the daily Vespers, though, 
is something you call small vespers. It's rather unknown in, in Greek tradition, but this would be on days where the all-night vigil is appointed. Uh, you would have an earlier celebration of vespers, and it's a much simpler, uh, very, very much, you know, chanted in a, in a monotone, very quick service uh, indeed. But all of those have Psalm 103 at the beginning of them. Uh, there are also, you know, Vespers starting, uh, you know, a Vesper liturgy and so forth, which is, again, a slightly different start. But Psalm 103 features in all of these services. The only time in the year we do Vespers without that opening psalm we mentioned before was uh, the, the Vespers of Bright Week, so the Paschal Vespers service, which doesn't have any psalmody at all. So then, Across these different services, Psalm 103 will be appointed to be done slightly differently. Uh, it's something like a small Vespers or daily Vespers, and indeed great Vespers not at a vigil. The typical practice is to chant it uh, on a monotone. Uh, it, it literally is appointed to be read. And I think we've distinguished before that in Slavic practice, when something is to be read in church, it is chanted in a monotone. But often in Greek practice, it is, it is simply read in a speaking voice. And that would be the normal way of, of starting it. The entire psalm, from beginning to end, is read. So either chanted in a monotone or read in a spoken voice. But when you have Vespers as part of a vigil, uh, we, it's almost like we are reverting to that earlier sung, asthmatic, Vesperal practice, the cathedral rite of Thessalonica in the 15th century or Constantinople before the 13th century, where... You don't get the full psalm, but you have excerpts of it, uh, highlights of it, often sung with uh, a kind of re repeating refrain, but it's sung with a great melody. Uh, it's, it, it's one that people would easily learn you know, by heart. And that, that singing tradition of the, the earlier cathedral rite kind of comes to the fore in that. So in a Russian church, for example, on the eve of, of Sunday or of a great feast, Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, my soul, will be sung, you know, with full choir and uh, refrains and accompanied ritually by the opening of the doors on uh, the iconostasis, the, the, the sensing and, and, and so forth. Properly speaking, the icon screen, iconostasis, is not opened for any other vesperal service at the beginning, uh, only at a vigil. Um, now, where some of that variation, you know, will come into play is uh, that in parish practice, so in Slavic tradition, where there's the parish practice, uh, the practice is to have an all-night vigil, but many parishes are not equipped to do an all-night vigil. They don't have the training to do it, or they don't have the, the, uh, the confidence maybe to do it. And so they will serve Vespers alone on a Saturday evening. But often, because they have a memory of this, uh, we'll start with the vigil opening. So you'll get a great Vespers that has a vigil opening, uh, which has the sensing and so forth. But it's not... That's not confusing not at, at all. all. No. I mean, the, the, and that's served out of a book that says, don't, you know, don't open the doors. The priest or presbyter only comes out wearing his, uh, his stole, his uh, epitrachelion, not his you know, full Polonian investments mm -hmm. and so forth and just comes and stands in front of the, the royal doors or holy doors and begins the service. That's what Great Vespers is appointed to start like, but you will often see a vigil opening, the full vesting, the sensing, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the doors opening, and so forth. So 
in the context of liturgical participation, there are obviously different roles for different people. You have the presbyter, the deacon, who are often at the front leading different aspects of the service, but you also have singers and readers who are just as much leading the service as well. Uh, you also have the people who are participating in the service. Uh, first of all, we could talk a little bit about, if we wanted to, the 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 tradition of people becoming more spectators than actually participating. So I'm interested in this episode to look at not only what the clergy are doing, not only what the singers are doing, but what can you do at that time in Vespers? So maybe we could start with the people first and then move towards maybe the singers and the clergy after that. Would that make sense? Or should we start with the clergy and move from no, there? I don't think it really matters you know, where, where we begin. Um, so if we start with the people... It is, yeah, a completely false notion that as uh, a Christian layman or laywoman that you are a non-participant or that you are simply a spectator. Um, it, it, anything that the church has done or the clergy have done um, in the span of, of many centuries that have given that idea, you know, should be repented of because it is entirely wrong. Uh, the entire people of God uh, gathered together uh, and then framed, as we said before, by this beautiful psalm of creation and so forth that sets out God as the creator and ongoing creator of all people and all things. He desires for his creation to be involved in his life. That's, that's the open invitation of the creation by our one and true God. And so participation in creation and in this concentrated way in our liturgical you know worship where we come to practice how we're going to be you know in, in the world I mean it's an open invitation to to participate as fully you know as we can does that mean everybody does all the same things not at all you know we there's all there's order in creation there's order in the service there's a uh, you know God has set things into place so that they are ordered and righteous and so forth. And so we, the church in, a, in her worship also reflects that same kind of sense of order. And so indeed, people are doing different things. Not everybody is going to swing the censer. Not everybody is going to lead a litany. Not everybody is going to uh, sing the, you know, the, the lead responses from the, the chanter stand and so forth. But everyone is there with a role you know, to play in forming the people of God that are being drawn into through the worship, uh, the, the the redemptive, salvific reality of the kingdom of God, and so, you know, not one person should be left out of that. Everybody comes and participates to the fullest of, of their ability. Uh, there's that beautiful phrase in um, the documents of. Uh, Vatican II, where this became an issue in, in the Western Church and, and so forth, but they, they called for the, the full, conscious, and active participation of all people in, in worship. And I think those three, you know, um, adjectives must be kept in mind. Full, conscious, and active. Now, what does that mean? You know, because there is a way, I think, of being full, conscious and active as a participant that doesn't necessarily even mean moving from from one spot or even opening one's mouth that you can you can in your heart and mind be joined to the prayer although there is you know hopefully scope for doing more than than just that but you know it's not a this isn't an inv invitation for people to 
judge or look at others and say, well, that person isn't being you know, enough of a participant because clearly, you know, he or she isn't chanting or isn't, you know, moving around or doing any of the, the ritual action. It's, it's not about that. It's about everyone knowing that they have their role to play, you know, in the service. Even if it's just joining themselves, heart and mind to the texts and the, the actions of the service as they depict and unfold the reality of God's covenant love and faithfulness to his creation. I think a good metaphor might be something like if you go see a musical, you see actors on a stage, some have that role, some have that role, some have that role, but they all sing together in harmony, fulfilling their own parts and in that way tell a story. Except at the liturgy, it can often feel as if the singers, the, the presbyter and the deacon are the actors on stage and everyone else is the spectators watching. But the metaphor that I would put forward is in in a liturgy in the Orthodox Church, there are no spectators. There are no seats like that. Everybody is on stage together, participating in harmony through their movement or, or through li their literal harmony of singing uh, together. So uh, is that a good yeah, metaphor? Yeah, absolutely. It, there is a stage there, but everybody's on it. You know, the, the footlights are, you know, on the steps of the church as you come in. Um, and everybody, when they come into the church, has to understand that they are being drawn into that overall story and drama of God's uh, life and love. And you know, there, there is nobody who is excluded, you know, from that. And as I say, if there's anything that's ever been done or said to suggest otherwise, then then we need to kind of amend that and, and repent of it because uh, far too many people have had that you know notion drilled into them. I mean, I. I don't think it's necessarily a function of, you know, having uh, seating, but I think seating can play a role in that. You know, we're used in the theater or other places where we are just merely, you know, passive spectators to kind of sit down and, and, and observe something happening on a, on a raised platform or whatever. And churches that have that in their, their kind of architecture and DNA maybe have a harder job to convince people that they are not you know, or that they are indeed on the stage and not in the audience, right? So, uh, you know, this isn't again, you know, saying that every church that has pews or seats is, is wrong. It's just that, you know, the, the point of not having those was precisely that people could kind of move with the service. You know, we, we've evoked before the, um, the old, uh, sung service, the cathedral rite, which was very, very much a processional service. It began, you know, in the narthex and then processed through the church. And even once the, the service was done, you were meant to process out to uh, the skevophilakion, the, the place where the, the vessels were kept, and also to the baptistry. And there were further prayers done after Vespers in those places. Or indeed, you know, think of uh, that key part of a festal Vesper service done as part of a vigil, which has, which is called the Liti or Litia, uh, where there's a procession out into the world. You know, it came from Jerusalem practice where they would go right out and they would go to sacred sites associated with our Lord and they would celebrate there. And so people were involved. They had to move. And it's harder to do when you're sitting down in a pew than it would be if you're in a space where the movement of the gospel book or of the censer or of you know, all of, of, of the icons carried in procession and everything happening around you, you can kind of more naturally feel like you're on that stage uh, rather than sitting in the audience. 
I think in our culture, we have this, this is a, an aspect of our culture that I feel present in me that is a hindrance to being able to fully jump into liturgy is what you might call like Netflix culture or the consuming content culture uh, or this being entertained constantly culture that uh, every aspect of, of our life in the Western world now is being transformed into this sort of emotional entertainment to the point that commercials now are keying in on your emotion instead of actually telling you what the product does it makes you feel something and then flashes the logo so that you attach the emotion to the product and i think subconsciously i think this is something that i've had to battle with is that we perceive we can start perceiving the liturgy as just another piece of entertainment to be consumed to to sit back and enjoy the service and whereas i think it's quite important to understand that we are actually part of that thing that's happening we are not passively observing this um I'm not sure if you have any comments on on that kind of culture or anything. That's just something that came to mind while you were talking. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, um, even the way we talk about things, you know, we 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 go to church or we attend uh, church rather than being church, right? Um, the the fact that church can't happen without us sort of slips out of our brains a lot of the time. That uh, the idea that you know there's almost this sense we have that that channel is on and we can sort of just tune into it as and when we are so inclined but otherwise you know it, it it doesn't really depend on us in that way if we truly understood that our participation is the basis on which the church's services work you know whether we are i, mean, I suppose it's a slightly more obvious equation for the, the paid clergy you know if they don't show up you know very little happens but Every layperson should have that same sense that it depends on them. Uh, it depends on them coming and forming together in that community of, of worship to offer sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to, to, to God. That this is our responsibility. This is our life. This is our true vocation. I think we, we really have to kind of work harder at recovering that sense rather than that kind of consumption. Uh, you know, consumer mentality that, that very often we have and which leads to other problems in the spiritual life. Obviously, it's, it's, you know, what can, what can I get out of church? You know, what good can I derive from that? And, and, or conversely, I'm not going to go because I'm not getting anything out of it sort of thing, right? As though it were some sort of uh, product or service to be consumed, like, you know, going in and, and using uh, any other anything else in our commercial culture and so forth. The other interesting thing that what you're saying though is about uh, this idea of, you know, we gravitate towards the things that uh, maybe entertain us, you know, in this whole Netflix culture and everything. And it's funny in thinking about the, um, the history of the Vesper service coming and all the liturgy there is coming out of the sung cathedral tradition on the one hand and the monastic tradition on the other. In the fourth and fifth century, this was a big deal, right? Uh, this was, 
you know, a real matter of some dispute, you know, within the church. And to re, the, the accounts we have are largely from the monastic side of things and the way that they, they weren't unaware of what was going on in the parish churches and the cathedrals with the sung service and everything. And, and it's very reminiscent of what we might be saying today about our Netflix consumer culture and everything, the way they describe the fact that in the parish churches, they're not as sober and you know, just focusing on psalmody. They're using these sung and composed hymns and, and so forth. I mean, this is some of what the monks are saying at the time. Um, there's a, you know, because the monks would, would go and they would experience this in the cities. They'd come back to their abbot or f spiritual father and ask, you know, why can't we do, you know, this, right? And so th this is some of the stuff that gets said, you know. So this is one of the abbots. Singing hardens the heart, turning it into stone and keeping the soul from repentance. If you desire to repent, abandon singing. Um, and then take a look at how little... Uh, the great fathers knew. They knew a few psalms, but not the tones of the traparia and all of the same. They shined like lamps in the world. Um, they raised the dead and cast out demons, not by singing traparia and tones, but by prayer and fasting. Man is not saved by sweet words, but by fearing God and keeping his commandments. Singing has led many into the abyss, casting laymen and priests alike into lechery and passion. And it goes on and on. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, in truth, let all melodious singing be far from the monk who desires to be saved. So from the monastic, early monastic perspective, um, already what was being offered in the cathedrals and parish churches through this kind of sung uh, worship and so forth was a Netflix <laughs> kind of culture, just a, a, appealing to people's you know, emotional uh, sensibilities and so forth, rather than getting on with the proper business of repentance and, and so forth. So, I mean, happily, you know, we didn't just have the monastic system imposed on us when all of the changes later took place. We had this kind of fusion of the two, which is awkward in places, but overall preserves a balance of the nice sung stuff that does draw you know, people back. And I think if you talk to a lot of lay people in terms of their own participation in the services, they will point more, more than likely to the sung bits. You know, they, they know, bless the Lord, oh my soul, when it's sung, uh, they probably couldn't quote verbatim the entire read or, or chanted psalm. And similarly, other parts of, of the services that... Uh, there are parts, there are parts of the service that I know by heart only if I sing them. And then I try and recite the words, and I'm like, oh, I don't think I have that right, but I can sing it for you. Very good. So you are not um, embodying the, the virtues of a 5th century monk, but, but you have got the point of, of why we do have this balance of, of sung elements. We can't all be perfect, you know. <laughs> Just don't let you, yourself fall into lechery and passion. Oh, okay. I'll, I'm, I'll make sure. Um, let's bring it back a bit to Psalm 103 here, and in particular... There's two things that uh, I often see happening physically with people who are participating in the liturgy uh, in the in the liturgy of Vespers. Uh, one is bowing when the when there's a sensing happening that you bow towards the the presbyter, uh, and uh, but also there's this uh, tradition sometimes that people might be familiar with of actually following the priest with your eyes and all the way around, like in a circle. 
And I'm wondering if, like, do you know where that comes from? Does that have any meaning? Uh, um, this question is for both the bowing and the turning. Yeah, I would say that, um, well, first of all, the bowing. I mean, it, the bowing is the common way in our liturgical worship that we embody and enact a kind of response to blessing, right? So properly speaking, uh, you know, when the presbyter or bishop blesses you, with the sign of the cross, you're not to make the sign of the cross yourself because it's already been made, you know, over you, but you bow to receive it. Um, you know, and we, we bow, uh, when we receive, you know, uh, the prayer of reconciliation or forgiveness after we confess, uh, you know, we bow in front of icons, uh, and so forth. So the similar, when we, when we are blessed with the sensing, uh, which is a sign of honor, you know, of our, you know, created, status and redeemed status as you know, image bearers of God. You know, that's how we, we respond, you know, to one another. We greet one another with, with the same kind of physical uh, sign of veneration and so forth. We, we're, we're responding to uh, what, what has been given to us, this blessing, this, this, this display of honor and, and so forth. As I you know, said a few moments ago, that Ideally, all of these services should be taking place in a kind of big open space that allows us to move around and process and, and, and make use of ritual motion and movement uh, during the services. But even if we're in one place, I suppose the, the following of the sensing, you know, physically by, you know, turning our shoulders and our, our eyes uh, to the one sensing you know, the church. So this isn't us being sensed at that point, but the icons and the whole liturgical space and so forth. But by following that movement, it's in a way a kind of procession of sorts. We aren't making that kind of uh, exodus from the altar, that move around the church and that return, you know, to, to the altar that the, the person doing the sensing, usually the, the presbyter or later in the service, the deacon and on what I have called uh, psalms and so forth. You know, we're not making that physical procession and nor in, if we're bounded by seating and pews or whatever, are we able to kind of move very far, but by, by kind of turning around uh, in that way, we're kind of processing, you know, with them. But it works even better uh, where there is no seating, where there's only, in, in fact, there would be like a, almost like a parting of the seas that takes place, right? As, as the sensor comes through and people aren't just turning towards it, but they're moving to, to make way. And so that, that idea that all of creation kind of is, you know, tied up with the activity of, and, and the kind of creative power of God moving forward, you know, through the world is, is kind of embodied by the way we move in response to that. podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. Can we talk a little bit about maybe getting into some of the minutiae of bowing? 
So there are multiple traditions of bowing in, in Orthodoxy, and there's the bowing that you were talking about, I'm assuming, is just the the simple bow at the waist to receive a blessing. But you'll also see people bowing and touching the ground with their hand, right? Or even bowing all the way onto their knees and they're touching their forehead to the ground. Um, could you talk a little bit about the purposes of the different kinds of bowing and when they're done? Sure. I mean, the, there is no one tradition or one guidebook. Uh, so you will find different expressions of these in different, you know, Orthodox local churches. So, you know, across the different uh, cultural and um, national Orthodox churches. But even, as I say, within uh, one diocese, you'll find different practices in different parishes and different people doing different things within, you know, uh, one parish, which is all absolutely fine. Uh, we only have a few kind of rules about this. One is that from Pascha to uh, Pentecost, that we don't uh, pray standing on the knees, uh, which is one of the kind of um, defined stances of prayer. Because this is ultimately what we're talking about, right, is postures or stances uh, of prayer. And to, to pray standing on the knees, in other words, on bended knees, is assumed uh, throughout the tradition to be a penitential stance, right? Um, so it's it's a stance of of repentance, a stance of of lament. It's a stance of of uh, you know deep um, compunction, right? So if you go right down onto your knees and you remain praying in that way, uh, and sometimes that can also mean head to the floor as well. So and that's what you would call a full prostration. Um, uh, whether it's done just for a moment and then back up or, or remain praying that way, that is kind of excluded on in periods where we celebrate the resurrection. Um, and that would be the 50 days of Pascha, so from Pascha to Pentecost. And indeed, every Sunday, you know, throughout the, the year, that the same kind of prescription, you know, applies. We don't remain standing on the knees is is the way that that's uh, phrased, because we're not in that posture. What does the resurrection mean? In Greek, anastasis, it means to stand again, right? So quite literally, what what redemption and salvation does for us is we are made to stand again and not to be on bended knees. So dramatically on the Feast of, of Pentecost in the afternoon or evening, so it's the eve of the next day, the day of the Holy Spirit, we have what are called the, the, the kneeling prayers. We, we return formally to being able to pray on our knees, which is the stance assumed really on weekdays uh, throughout the church year, right? So a lot of the prayers and hymns are penitential uh, and are about our, you know, our, our turning back to God from our uh, fallen state, supplicating him for, for salvation, for redemption. And in that posture of bended knees, you know, we have that. So, so standing, you know, is the fundamental stance of the, the redeemed person. It's the stance of the divine liturgy. It's the stance of Pascha and every Sunday, etc. And then you have this kind of mode of, of bended knees, or praying on, on the knees, which is the ultimate stance of, of repentance and so forth. Well, in between that, obviously, other kinds of bows 
um, you know, can happen. So whether it's, you know, a slight inclination of the head or bowing from the waist or bowing, as you said, and, and touching the floor, uh, with or without a sign of the cross, you know, all of these kind of exist in that middle place, which can mean things like venerating. Um, it can mean, obviously, to some degree, uh, repentance. There's even the sense in which just a quick prostration, so bended knees, head to the floor, sign of the cross, um, is a sign of, of, of profound awe and, and worship and not penitence. And so in a great many traditions, people continue to do a, a kind of single prostration, for example, at the consecration of the gifts in the divine liturgy. And that can be on a Sunday and without any kind of canonical prescription or, you know, typical prescription against it. It's, um, cause it's not done out of penitence. What we're trying to do is to say there are certain stances or postures to adopt at certain times, right? So um, you know, there's a great amount of freedom in the church, and nobody will be judging one another you know, for, for not following any particular program in this. But ultimately, if you're paying attention and entering and participating fully in the services, you kind of know when it's appropriate to be moving into a really strong mode of, of, of penitence or of you know, the bended knee posture versus what our normal stance in prayer is, which is to stand. Um, and there's a th kind of third way, which is sitting. Uh, and there is appointed times, and we're going to find this in Vespers even, where it is it is uh, appointed to sit. And that's more, uh, it's neither you know penitential, nor is it you know, standing in kind of uh, assurance of, of, of salvation, of the resurrection and so forth, but it's more in a kind of contemplative, reflective mode. And that really comes out of that monastic tradition of, of the Liturgy of the Hours, where psalms would be read kind of continuously and, and meditatively rather than uh, done for any particular thematic you know, point um, at, that, at that stage. So in a way, our bodies should be reflecting the themes and the, the, the story, the drama of what we're entering into. The same way the actor or the dancer on that stage is going to do things with their body that that reflect the story, reflect the drama, and and that's what we're invited to do liturgically as well. So it's not just okay. Well, we have the tradition of making the sign of the cross or vowing or whatever. It's these are precisely given to us as an opportunity to involve our bodies in the same worship that we're involved in, in our hearts and our mm -hmm. minds and so forth. Yeah, I I think that was a very useful digression. I I think that that. Uh the 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 different modes of bowing and the different postures is is something it was good to uh deal with that uh, earlier on because it comes up a lot all throughout the services sure. so so usually correct me if i'm wrong you're in church on a saturday evening and it's vespers you should be uh you are you should be standing as the psalm is being read or sung and in certain traditions, as the deacon or the presbyter moves around the congregation sensing, some people will actually follow the, uh, the deacon or the presbyter with their eyes all the way into a in a circle. And it would be appropriate to do kind of a bow from the waist uh, as, the, as the presbyter actually offers you the, the incense uh, towards you, I should say. Uh, cool. So... We talked, well, obviously, right there, we were talking about what the deacon and the presbyter are doing. I think there's a bit more that's happening there as well, the prayers of light and the sensing. Uh, so you mentioned the sensing happens during a vigil-style 
opening of Vespers. That's right. Uh, so when so either if it's a full vigil that's being served, or I think you mentioned that sometimes even if a vigil isn't being done, they will keep the practice of having a vigil style beginning to Vespers. That's right. Uh, which would in, which would include opening the holy doors in the middle of the altar wall, the Iconostas, and then sensing all the way around the congregation. So that's one thing, obviously, that the clergy are doing. But there's also the prayers of light that the presbyter says. So either without the sensing or after the sensing, the presbyter will come out of uh, one of the side doors and stand in front of the ho- the closed holy doors. I've always been told that this is Adam being exiled and expelled from paradise, standing in front of the closed gates of paradise. I've never heard anything different until the last podcast we recorded, and you blew that out of the water. So let's we got to talk about this again. Yeah, well, until the 19th century, that idea appears to have been, you know, absent from our tradition. So we have various authors, you know, there are three of them that come to mind from the 19th century, uh, Russian commentators on the vigil service. And they make that, that, that point that, that that is for them what's happening here. Because of course, they're, they're then going to describe the entirety of Vespers as a, as a story of salvation history. So they, they note the Psalm 103 is a, hymn of creation. And so for them, that's setting up the beginning of the story. And then and that's vividly depicted, you know, and, and interpreted uh, in the way that the sensing takes place. So the, the incense is the spirit hovering over the waters of creation and so forth. The, the light that comes out of the, the, the altar area is the, the, the creation of light. Uh, the light is also carried in the candle, the deacon carries in front of the presbyter as that sensing takes place and, and so forth. And then it all comes to a kind of dramatic movement um, where the, the, they return to the altar, the, the doors are closed, uh, the lights are dimmed, and the presbyter has stripped himself of his outer vestments, the philonium, it comes out only wearing his stole and stands before the holy doors. And, you know, I... It's easy to pick up on the, the kind of imagery of the casting out of, of paradise, you know, in that dramatic action. There's, there's no question. And in fact, the very uh, opposite is being told to us in, you know, at Pascha and all of Bright Week, because, of course, what do we do? We leave the holy doors and the, the deacon's doors on the iconostasis open, right? And that's meant to represent, you know, the, the opening of... Uh, of, of paradise uh, again. So by analogy and by extrapolation, you know, if the doors are closed, then it must be paradise has been shut against it. That's, it's it's fine. You know, it, it's a whole, you know, kind of set of interpretations. The, the, the real problem with that only becomes in taking us away from noticing the real themes of Vespers around, you know, the, the, the light uh, and so forth. But, you know, as a kind of paradigm, it, it's fine. But to depict what the presbyter is doing with those uh, prayers of light as, as kind of lament of, of Adam, you know, iconologically, you can maybe see that, right? That that's what the, the action has kind of indicated. But if when you read those prayers, you know, there's absolutely nothing in them that would suggest that lament, you know, of, of Adam, you know. It's not that we never commemorate the casting of Adam and Eve from paradise in Vespers. Uh, it's appointed, for example, 
on the very last Sunday before Great Lent, uh, Cheese Fair Sunday, the Sunday of Forgiveness, where we commemorate, and including in Vespers with the hymns, uh, the casting of Adam and Eve from, from paradise. But it's, it is a bit of a stretch to see it as kind of embedded in every Vesper service. I guess it, it would be a different story if those prayers of light that the priest was reading quietly actually referred to being cast out of paradise and was explicitly making that connection. But I think you mentioned last time the prayers don't make that claim at all. They're they're talking about going into the darkness, but Christ being the light that sustains us. Yeah, well, that and, and they pick up very directly on what was that original opening psalm from the Sung Vesperal Service, Psalm, psalm 85, which is their themes that are still in Psalm 103, you know, about God's infinite capacity as creator, as the one who's compassionate and merciful, um, and uh, you know the one who I mean, I'll quote a little bit here from the sixth prayer: "God, great and wonderful, who with ineffable loving kindness and great riches of providence orders all things and bestows upon us earthly good things." Right? These are themes of the psalm that's being sung. Right? The one who orders all things, who bestows earthly good things who's given us a pledge of the promised kingdom through the good things already bestowed upon us. There's no sense here of, you know, being cast out of paradise and, and so forth. In the seventh prayer, those hymn, the, 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 the real themes of light and darkness are evoked. O great and most high God, who alone um, have immortality and dwell in light unapproachable, who made all creation in wisdom, who divided the light from the darkness and appointed the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars to govern the night, right? So again, all of these are, are the, the themes from, from the psalm. They're themes about the God that we stand before in, in worship. And that's really ultimately what we're meant to be kind of sensing, uh, feeling, experiencing in our hearts and minds at this time, all of us, presbyter, deacon, chanters, lay people, that we have been brought before the creator of the universe who isn't an uncaring, um, you know, detached creator, but the one who cares for every breath that we breathe. And that, you know, we, we could miss a little bit if we're simply seeing it as something unfolding in front of us as like a play showing you know, creation, and then Adam and Eve being cast out of uh, out of paradise, um, and so forth. I mean, that theme of being cast out of paradise is very much one that's there in the Sundays before uh, Lent, and on one Sunday, you know, in particular, the Sunday of the Last Judgment. But um, in in the sense of having it embedded into every Vespers, it's it's not really. There. I have a related question, and it's about sensing around the church. So the we were just talking about the presbyter going out and standing in front of the, the holy doors, and that has been understood as having this narrative significance of Adam, but that comes in a certain part of history and da 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 da. The sensing going around the church, I've growing up in the Orthodox tradition, I've heard many different explanations. Uh Everything from it's just a way of making the whole church smell good uh, to, you know what, it, it, that itself is also a symbol of the fall, the redemption, and the return of humanity. Um, I've also heard of it being um, a symbol of Jesus Christ descending amongst us and then ascending back into heaven. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the meaning and significance of the the sensing 
around the church. Which happens not only here, but it happens a lot in the services. But since this is the first uh, time we're talking about it in the context of a service, we'll talk about it here. Sure. Um, so again, in, in according to what's appointed, this should only be happening at a vigil service today. Uh, so it's not appointed for ordinary great vespers and, or daily vespers or anything like that. But this really does come out of the cathedral rite, uh, sung service uh, tradition, the so-called asthmatic uh, services. And St. Simeon of Thessalonica, again, 15th century, it's the last place that that style or rite of, of services was being celebrated. A couple of centuries after it was celebrated virtually anywhere else, it was still being done in the church in Thessalonica. Uh, then, And he, he refers specifically to the, the sensing. And... Uh, he says there, there are three great services in, in the church. Uh, he talks about Vespers, Matins, and Divine Liturgy. And he says, before each of them, we make this kind of great sensing. So this was very much part of, of the ordinary practice of Vespers in that sung rite, the cathedral rite, that you filled the church with incense before you began the service. In fact, you know, that, that, that it would be replete, the air would be replete with that smell and the smoke of, of, of incense was the kind of, you know, was the goal here, right? So that that very much is the, the kind of practical and relatively mundane, you know, um, origin of this. So anything else is going to be, um, you know, some kind of theologizing, as you've referred to it before, kind of giving in, in a kind of uh, rationale to something that is already happening. So the idea is to fill the place with incense because that's, the context, part of again of the setting the scene for for the service and and whatnot. One of the the kind of dominant ideas, though, um, around this um, and around processions in general, which tend to take a kind of circular form, goes right back to an early church um, author from the fifth century, which is um, Dionysius the Areopagite. Um, sometimes called uh, Dennis or the Pseudo-Dionysius. Uh, so he's a writer probably somewhere in, in, in Syria, and he talks a, a lot about the kind of motion that a sensing, you know, the form that a sensing kind of takes on, this idea of, of, of leaving, you know, the kind of wholeness and the place of rest, of going out, you know, uh, of kind of descent, and then movement and dynamism, and then this mo movement of return, right? So you have uh, you know, rest, and then a dynamic motion of out into the world, and then back to the kind of wholeness and oneness of, of rest and after the return and so forth. And I mean, he's very definitely uh, borrowing uh, thinking here from uh, Neoplatonic you know, writers and, and so forth, people like Plotinus and others spoke a lot about this idea of, you know, being in the one and then, you know, descending from the one and, and kind of making a, a circular motion only to return. This was the kind of fundamental motion of, of, of the world in a way. And so in a way that and, and Dionysius specifically refers to things like going out to do the sensing and you know, leaving the altar, that place of, of rest and wholeness and going out into the world descending only to, to ascend again. And in a way, it's a kind of, you know, horizontal version of, you know, that fundamental pattern that we find in every story, in a way, that kind of descent and, and reascent, the U-shape, 
uh, of of salvation, uh, the, the the U shape uh, that we find in in the Psalms as well. This idea of you know the, the, we begin in a particular place, something intervenes to cause us to fall away from that, and then we have to you know, reorient ourselves in order to to return to to a place of wholeness. And almost every Psalm will be located somewhere along that kind of trajectory of of storytelling. And you know whether it starts at the pit, and 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 uh, calls out to God for for redemption, or starts in a place of wholeness and then shows the the descent, and 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 in, in order to return and, and so forth. But that is the fundamental, you know, kind of pattern of psalms, of stories, of the scriptures themselves. I mean, Christ Himself descends in order to rise. He descends from heaven in the incarnation to rise in the ascension. He descends to hell in his death in order to rise in the resurrection. So that all that fundamental movement is kind of reflected um, in, in a way through every sensing, through every procession with the gospel book, through every you know, kind of movement uh, you know, through the church. It's, it's kind of a fundamental narrative move or stance or, and, and, which is ritually enacted in that way. So we've talked about the people, we've talked about the clergy, and we've talked already in a couple of different episodes about the singing. So is there anything final that you'd want to say about the singing or the the enacting of Psalm 103 in that context? Yeah, I, I, we've talked about a, a little bit about the variety of practices and everything. And I remember an episode or two back, we, we spoke about um, the fact that you know, in Greek practice, uh, when you get to a vigil service, it looks a little bit different from the way it does in, in Russian practice. So we've, we've spoke earlier about you know, that it's sung in Russian practice or Slavic practice in a kind of, you know, compacted version, an excerpt of, of the psalm and with refrains and so forth. Uh, the Greek tradition, um, in a way, goes back to uh, the asthmatic or, or sung office. And so it's one of the holdovers that they keep a little bit more directly from what St. Simeon um, of Thessalonica would recognize from, from his uh, practice in, in, in his day, in his city. And that is that the whole psalm is retained, right? But the, the beginning is done rather simply. Uh, it could even be just read, uh, but maybe just sung in a kind of simple tone and so forth, until you get to a certain point uh, in the psalm. And that's towards the end, when you get to the words, uh, you opened up your, uh, order right here, I'll have to cut this out. Uh, okay, uh, you, when it gets to the point, when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. So that's verse 28 of Psalm 103, when you open your hand. And at that point, it takes on this whole other character. It becomes much more melismatic, much more uh, complicated melody, and much more drawn out. And indeed, it is actually interspersed at this point. So it's not that uh, the psalm is cut back in any way, but it actually gets uh, elements added to it. And these are the so-called um, anexa, anexantaria. Anexantaria. And they are, they're not actually appointed in any of the service books. Uh, they're just passed down in kind of chanter's notes from generation to generation. They're quite fascinating. So uh, from that point, and, and the, these verses are interspersed, like we would 
experience, you know, normally in Vespers on the, the lamplighting psalms, the Lord I Call and so forth. And these are all hymns that are directed towards uh, the Trinity. So, for example, when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. Glory to you, O God. It's the first interspersal. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Glory to you, O Father. Glory to you, O Son. Glory to you, O Holy Spirit. Glory to you, O God. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Glory to you, O God. And so on and so forth. And later, uh, glory to you, O tri-hypostatic divinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We bow down before you and glorify you. Glory to you, O God. So this latter part of the psalm can take a long time indeed, because as I say, the, the melodies can be drawn out. There's all these interspersing of these uh, particular hymns to the Trinity and, and so forth. So that's what the vigil character of Psalm 103 looks like often in, in Greek tradition, um, which is... It's, it's interesting because it's different from the Slavic practice, uh, and it retains something that St. Simeon would recognize, as I say, from that cathedral or sun rite. Wonderful. I think we've covered everything that we want to cover for Psalm 103. Uh, maybe I'll just give a quick summary, and then if there's anything you want to add, you could add it on top of that. So if I'm understanding correctly, uh, the way that Psalm 103 is liturgically enacted by the community is... Uh, the, the people uh, are standing in a posture of prayer, standing, and following with their eyes the presbyter, if he's doing a sensing, um, bowing at the appropriate times, as well as listening to the psalm, contemplating the meaning, but also singing, if they so desire. Uh, you have the singers who are either just simply chanting the psalm or um, singing it out loud. And then you have the presbyter and the deacon who either do uh, a sensing around the church, or the, the presbyter just simply stands out in front of the holy doors uh, awaiting the beginning of the uh, litany of peace, which is the next aspect of Vespers. Uh, do I have that about right? Am I missing anything? Is there anything you want to add? I suppose the only last comment to make is that um, there should be a full opening to Vespers with all of the, you know, the Trisagian prayers and so forth. Um, we don't often do that because the assumption is you've just finished ninth hour and that ninth hour is what preceded Vespers immediately. And so that's why uh, we go straight into the opening psalm um, at, at Vespers rather than doing what we would normally see in most liturgical hours, which is this kind of opening set of prayers and so forth. But often in non-monastic practice, we don't have ninth hour, but we've retained the, the shorter opening. So that's... Just another little piece of trivia for you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.